Hi, everyone. It's Scott. And this is Paul. Uh, before we jump into the latest episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters, we're excited to tell you about the tutorials, live streams, and workshops that are now being offered by our friends at American Songwriter. If you're a songwriter looking to hone your craft or deepen your knowledge, go to americansongwriter.com slash live dash workshops to learn more. And check this out. We are offering Songcraft listeners a 20% discount code for all the songwriting and production workshops. So sign up for one today using code SONGCRAFT. That's S-O-N-G-C-R-A-F-T in all caps. And even though it's all caps, we promise we're not yelling at you. (laughs) We're not yelling at you, but we are yelling about this opportunity because it's cool. Yeah. So don't forget to visit americansongwriter.com slash live dash workshops. And when you find one you want to check out, use discount code SONGCRAFT for 20% off. Welcome to SONGCRAFT, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. SONGCRAFT is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Grand Ole Opry legend Jeannie Seeley. The Grammy winner, who placed nearly 30 singles on the Billboard country charts as an artist, will join us in a moment to chat about her craft as a BMI award-winning songwriter whose compositions have been recorded by Merle Haggard, Ray Price, Irma Thomas, Rhonda Vincent, Farron Young, Connie Smith, Dottie West, Willie Nelson, and others. She'll chat about co-writing with Randy Newman and Glenn Campbell, share her perspective on Nashville's songwriting community as the former spouse of Hall of Fame songwriter Hank Cochran, tell us what she learned from Porter Wagner, and shed insights on the challenges women of her generation faced while making their way as respected country songwriters. Part 1 Paul, I was looking at the uh, iTunes chart, and the number one song right now as we record this is a song called hold on to me that was uh, recorded by an artist named Lauren Daigle. And it was written by Lauren with uh, a fellow named Paul Mabry and another Paul, uh, Paul Duncan. All of this is true. My co-host right here on Songcraft. (laughs) All of this is true. You know, when we started this show, I didn't anticipate that we would, ever have the kind of credibility that a guy who has the number one song on iTunes would, would be on here talking about songwriting. You're, you're really in danger of making us seem legitimate. Well, what's happened is I've just learned so much from this process, from all of these writers that we interview, that I just, I just go home every night and apply it. So yeah, there, you know. there you go. Not only are you the owner of Hair Club for Men, you're also a customer. <laughs> Too close to home, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that was the old, uh, the old commercial. And the word half is client. Our, Not half... only am I the owner, I'm a client. Right, right. Yeah. Half our audience is like, what are you guys talking totally. about? Uh, yeah. If you didn't, if you weren't watching, uh, WGN on, on cable, uh, <laughs> in about 1993, <laughs> right. 
Um, no, but hey, man, that is uh, amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you, man. Um, you know, this song, uh, Driver's License, was sitting at number one on the iTunes chart. And uh, here comes Lauren Daigle and, and knocks Driver's License off the pedestal, which, I mean, that song was such a sensation that there yeah. was even a Saturday Night Live sketch about it a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, that was like that that song has been like the, the song of the year so far and man here comes lauren and and boom new kid in town the new new uh new queen at the top of the charts well i pray that there's no saturday night live skit coming because i <laughs> my ego is too fragile to be lampooned at the national level um but yeah and, and that driver's license song is amazing so i mean just yeah. sort of even breathing the same air as, yeah. as those great songs is pretty awesome yeah and you know it's interesting to me that both of those songs kind of have this um you know, driver's license is like a lament, right? Yeah. And hold on to me is more of like a hopeful, you know, kind of cry. Yeah. Um, but they also have somewhat of a similarity in terms of their mid-tempo. Um, they're both like inherently emotional songs. They both kind of elicit this emotional reaction. I have to say, you know, as somebody who cares about songwriting, the fact that those two songs have now been back to back at the top of the iTunes charts feels hopeful to me. They're oh. both melodic. Uh, they both actually have something to say. Um, you know, it feels like, you know, I'm at the risk of sounding like, you know, an old man who's referencing the hair club for men uh, commercials. Um, a lot of, you know, pop hits today just kind of don't do it for me. Cause I feel like the craft of, of songwriting is often lost. And I don't know, man, I think uh, the, I feel like we're on like a good little, little wave here. Well, I, th you know, I, I think the world, I was about to say the country, but you know, the world has been through so much in the last year or more. And, uh, having songs that kind of appeal to our emotions and our, our vulnerabilities, um, you know, in the lyrics, I think it's the right time for that. Uh, yeah. I think people are kind of responding to that. Um, and, and there's, there's something, you know, something healing in music. And so I think you find, you know, music that responds to the times and then people that respond to that music in kind. So, um, it, I think a lot of it has to do with just where we're at as, as a broad listening base on the globe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's a new, uh, it's, it's kind of an uncharted, uh, era for yeah. us as a country and and music at its best i think kind of reflects culture and uh and so anyway all that to say dude congratulations that's Thank you. huge uh i i'm very excited about your uh success um with that song and i i think it's gonna be uh huge so for the listeners uh, if you haven't heard it yet it's called hold on to me by lauren daigle um, and go to, to YouTube or Spotify, wherever you listen to your music. Um, better yet, go to Amazon and buy the CD since we're talking about being old school. How about and, it? Uh, yeah. I don't even know if there is a, a physical CD, but that's, that's, well, that's a good point. L look it up. <laughs> right now it's just a single, but you when the album, me. when the album comes out, then yeah. you can buy the CD and you'll want to buy the vinyl, uh, to, if you're a collector as well. And then when you buy both those things, you're also helping to support Paul, which keeps uh, this show, uh, you know, going. So, hey, all good stuff. Um, you know, Paul, this is uh, the beginning of March and um, March is Women's History Month, which yep. 
I um, actually have to confess that I recently learned, I have known for many years um, that February is Black History Month. Um, and folks might remember that uh, we kind of led into February talking about um, what are some songs that have kind of stuck with us that have been associated with the civil rights movement or songs that have been um, particularly uh, impactful in terms of having a particular social justice bent um, in terms of speaking to the plight of black America. Mm. Um, and we kind of led into into the month with that. Um, as we kind of reflect now moving into Women's History Month, um, we thought, you know, it, it just sometimes things just fall into place. Um, and I think that that Anytime you're talking about black history or, or women's history or, or celebrating, you know, the achievements of any group that has historically kind of been marginalized or been more of a minority, um, any celebration of those achievements should obviously come out of an appreciation for those achievements yeah. um, and not like a uh, some sort of virtue signaling or, or need to appear politically correct, but but a need to to really shine a spotlight on historically um, achievements that haven't gotten as much attention. Um, and I think that's the whole reason for having a women's history month is, is yeah. to stop and say, Hey, let's, let's acknowledge these things that deserve acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly in, in the world of songwriting, uh, it's one of those things where, where you look and you think, man, there have been some songwriters that have been wildly successful in what has largely been kind of a male dominated industry. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's worth pointing out because it's that's hard to do. It's hard to break through an industry that's dominated by one group of people when you're not part of that group of people. <laughs> right. And I, when I when I say that, you know, sometimes things just fall together, um, that's what happened for us, because it just so happens that we recently interviewed uh, Jeannie Seeley who is our um, guest on this episode. Um, we also recently interviewed Jackie DeShannon, who is going to be our guest on the next episode of Songcraft. And both of them organically, just in, in having these conversations, talked a little bit about the struggles of being a woman making her way as a songwriter and trying to be taken seriously as a songwriter, you know, in the 1960s and how there was a bit of an uphill climb for both of those women, you know, Jeannie in the country world and Jackie in the pop world. Um, they both were, were pioneers and, and probably had they come along later, um, may have had more success, yeah. um, as songwriters. But if it weren't for women like them paving the way, uh, then we probably wouldn't see women like Diane Warren, right. uh, who was on our last episode, have the kind of success that she's had. So um, so it just kind of, you know, really kind of fell in our laps. The, the, the timing was perfect to say, hey, you know what? This is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate some of these pioneering women um, and, and and spotlight these conversations with, you know, just the incredible odds that they faced and yet the incredible music that they managed to make uh, in the midst of that. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, we, we've, interviewed like you you mentioned diane and we've interviewed linda perry we, we've interviewed some of the the female songwriters who have been so so successful in recent years and so it, it's it's people might not realize just what a, a struggle it was in the 60s yeah to get recognized as a songwriter if, if you weren't a man 
Um, so I, I love the fact that we've had a chance to have these conversations. I mean, you know, the one with, with Jackie was really illuminating and, and the one upcoming today with Jeannie was just so much fun and there was so much history and so much to be learned there. Yeah. Um, and I, I went home and took all my learning and wrote another song, you know, I mean. Yeah, because, you know, Women's History Month is, is all about you. Um, so, uh, <laughs> no, but, um, you know, it is important, I think for us to, to have these conversations and to, to focus, you know, on, on these topics. And it, it kind of the, the, you know, not only was it difficult for women in the sixties, women as songwriters have made huge strides, um, but we're still probably not yet to kind of full equality uh with men you know we we've we've progressed right. uh, for sure um but i don't know that we've fully arrived yet and that was sort of brought into stark contrast uh to me because somebody had asked me recently who what are your next episodes that are coming up and i said um Jeannie seely and um jackie de shannon are, are going to be next and then the person said oh well you just did diane warren you're, you're gonna do three women in a row and I went back and looked at uh, our episodes and I realized the longest stretch that we ever went with with just men was 14 episodes. <laughs> yeah, no and, one ever asked. <laughs> and no one no one ever said, you're going to do another episode with a man? 14 <laughs> in a row? Really? Isn't this thing that's a little much? Um, so that there... encapsulates <laughs> the discussion, doesn't it? <laughs> right. So there is uh, still a bit of a like a, a subcategory. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate. We, we want to be able to just say, hey, songwriters. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a woman songwriter is a subcategory of songwriter. The, a woman Woman songwriter is a songwriter. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, if, if we do 14 in a row that are female songwriters, then, hey, no problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look how progressive we are. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, um, so hopefully we're going to have another woman songwriter who's going to be rounding out the uh, month of celebration for us. But uh, I can't say it yet because it hasn't been confirmed. But, man, it's going to be Wait, really cool. Is that going to be four in a row? Yeah, four in a row. Oh, wow. Sound the alarm bells. <laughs> uh, yeah, scandal has come to song. Exactly. <laughs> Part two. Singer, songwriter, producer, actress, author, and radio show host Jeannie Seeley has been a staple of the Grand Ole Opry cast for more than five decades and is now the official ambassador for the Opry. She rose to prominence with the number one hit, Don't Touch Me, a multi-million selling single written by her ex-husband, songwriting legend Hank Cochran, that earned her a Grammy Award and recognition from Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World magazines as the most promising female country artist. Earning the nickname Miss Country Soul, Seeley placed nearly 30 songs on the Billboard country chart, including It's Only Love, A Wandering Man, I'll Love You More Than You Need, Can I Sleep in Your Arms Tonight, Mister, the Grammy-nominated Jack Green duet Wish I Didn't Have to Miss You, and the self-penned songs Farm in Pennsylvania and He Can Be Mine. Before she hit the charts as an artist, Jeannie found early pop songwriting success with Anyone Who Knows What Love Is Will Understand, a pop and R&B hit for Irma Thomas that she co-wrote with Randy Newman. Soon, country artists such as Connie Smith and Dottie West began recording Jeannie's songs, and since then her compositions have been recorded by Willie Nelson, Ernest Tubb, Ray Price, Little Jimmy Dickens, Tex Williams, Merle Haggard, Lori Morgan, Doyle Lawson, and Farron Young, who scored a top 10 pop hit with Leaving and Saying Goodbye, which earned Jeannie a BMI award. 
Recording for the Monument, DECA, MCA, and Columbia labels, Sealy is credited with breaking barriers for women in country music, and the four-time CMA Awards nominee hasn't slowed down. She hosts her own radio show on Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM and co-wrote Like I Could, a recent bluegrass chart topper recorded by Rhonda Vincent. Her recent albums include Written in Song, which spotlights her own compositions, and American Classic, her most recent album which features Not a Dry Eye in the House, a duet with Willie Nelson that was released on Jeannie's 80th birthday in 2020. Jeannie, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your show. This is exciting. Too often songwriters are ignored. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's great to uh, for us to have the opportunity to kind of put the spotlight on the songwriting process, and it's, a, it's an honor to, to speak with you. You are a Grammy-winning country performer with nearly 30 charting singles for the Monument, DECA, MCA, and Columbia labels, um, decades as a staple of the Grand Ole Opry cast. Um, but today we really want to focus on the songwriting aspect of your career, which is not something that we get to hear about as much as we'd like to. Um, and in order to help us kind of understand your influences as a songwriter, take us back to where you grew up and, and what kind of music you heard as a kid that really kind of caught your ear and, and made an impression on you. Well, as a child, of course, uh, I was a product of World War II, so some of my earliest memories were, of course, of uh, people like Ernest Tubb. Hmm. And uh, I remember the songs about after the war was over, Rainbow at Midnight, I had no idea what they were even talking about. Huh. But at five years old, I was singing along with Ernest Tubb. Right. And uh, so I think country music, of course, we always listen to the Grand Ole Opry. So country music was very prominent in my early childhood. As I went into my early teens, um, because there was a show called Hit Parade on, and so I was wanting to hear, are there females that sing? Are there, do girls get to do this? Hmm. And that's where I found, um, uh, through that show, introduced to Rosemary Clooney, Patti Page, Teresa Brewer, and people like that. So I had that influence. My mother also loved pop music and um, the movie, music from the movies, and she used to sing all those to me. Yeah. And then, of course, and the later teenage when uh, Pat Boone and Elvis Presley and all and the rock and roll scene came in I was just enamored by all of that yeah yeah now I understand that you moved to Los Angeles when you were around 21 years old what drew you out west to California when you were starting out in, instead of going you know to Nashville well it was actually not musically motivated or career motivated. I grew up in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania, and the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say, is when I buried my MGA Roadster in a snowdrift on Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> and I remember walking all the way home, ruining my new Easter shoes. <laughs> 
why I didn't have a pair of boots in that sports car, I don't know. It wasn't like I didn't know better. But I I said, there's got to be another place to live. Right. And I had seen Southern California on TV and it looked pretty good to me. So that was what inspired me to move to California. Wow. And that was um, then another girl that I had not met at first had moved back home. And she came in driving a, a 1960 Austin Healey. Hmm. So anyway, we got to be friends real quick. And we actually drove those two sports cars from northwestern Pennsylvania to Santa Monica Beach. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, At 21, you don't know that there's any reason to be afraid of anything right. out there. So <laughs> right. God's had a whole flock of angels following wow. me. <laughs> right. Um, well, I've read that you landed a secretarial job at Liberty Records in Hollywood, which is where you were working when you found your first success as a songwriter with anyone who knows what love is will understand. Um, and that song was recorded by Irma Thomas. It hit number 52 on the Billboard pop chart. It was the flip side of her single Time Is On My Side, which became very well known when the Rolling Stones covered that song. Um, but I'm I'm fascinated that your first hit was with an R&B artist, and I'm really intrigued that it was co-written with Randy Newman, because as far as I understand it, Randy Newman has only ever collaborated with three songwriters in his career, Jackie DeShannon, Bobby Darin, and you. Um, so I would love to hear the story of how that came about and how the secretary became a songwriter. <laughs> well, um, yeah, of course, I wanted, I was trying to learn to write. And I'm not a musician. First of all, everybody needs to know I'm not a musician. I can, I can't read or write music. You know, I just make up, I make up stories and, and, melodies mm -hmm. but um so this was always frustrating to me when i had that idea for that song and i was staying after work to use a piano what limited chords i play trying to work the song out and i'd met randy of course because part of my job there was working at metric music where he was writing mm. And uh, I set up demos and all. So I met Randy, but didn't know him real well. It wasn't like we did think about writing. Randy came in the hall, down the hall, and I was trying to figure out where the chord changes would go that I could hear hmm. in that song. So I hollered at him. I said, come help me figure out where this is going. <laughs> um to how it ended up with an R&B artist when I was basically a country singer, country songwriter was because Eddie Ray was uh, producing an A&R at Imperial Records there. And he heard it and he's the one who took it to Irma. Yeah. And of course, H.B. Barnum, the arranger, did such an awesome job. I think one of the key things on that record was the anyone, it just catches your attention and yeah. still does. I think that's one thing. The haunting part of that is why so many people have chosen to do it.
to tell you when I I guess it's been three years ago now when I was doing an album called Written in Song and they were all songs that I had written had never recorded I had to Google that song to remember it again Wow! (laughs) it had been so long and I could not believe all of the people have recorded the song so Naturally, I started following up with publishing company, (laughs) but that's how that happened with Randy. It was a one only time, and I am so honored always. Of course, I was such a fan of Randy's when he was first getting started, and of course, that only grew. What a great guy he is, an incredible talent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think that's interesting given the the amount of... um, music that you have recorded over your career. Um, why do you think it was that you never recorded your own version of that particular song until recently? I don't really know. I can't, I can't really answer that. Um, I know in the early part of my career, of course, I was so strongly influenced by Hank Cochran and some of the other powerful writers and Fred Foster. And to be honest, kind of being told what I was going to do. Right. And then I went through a period where, to me, the lyrics were very condescending. Hmm. But that's the way I, I was going through that little situation at that time. Plus... During that era, that's the way they expected women to be and to feel about things. And also, someone pointed out uh, why the song has been chosen, been recorded so many times. Someone else pointed out to me, said, you don't hear that vulnerability Hmm. in songs Hmm. anymore. Yeah. And that maybe uh, we're all realizing that it's it's okay to express that feeling. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. interesting. Um, Well, in the wake of your songwriting breakthrough, you signed with the Los Angeles-based Challenge Records and released a handful of singles in 1965 that included some of your original songs, uh, If I Can't Have You, A World Without You, and Today Is Not The Day. Um, But around that same time, you started getting cuts with country artists, including Connie Smith, who did Senses, and Dottie West, who recorded your song, It Just Takes Practice, on her album, Dottie West Sings. You just can't be that important. My life can't be over yet. For I know it just takes practice to forget. They say practice makes perfect, so I'll just practice every day. My hurt is big, but not so big that I can't make it go away. So in that period, you're writing songs for yourself as an artist. 
um, but you're also having your songs recorded by others. And I'm curious if you had a particular songwriting discipline in those early days in terms of, you know, did you write a particular time each day or just write certain days of the week or did you just kind of write as inspiration struck? Well, I had a girlfriend that uh, Joe Allison, who was a big producer at, at not only uh, Liberty Records, but also Capitol, and who incidentally wrote Jim Reeves, He'll Have to Go. Joe had introduced me to Gail Talley, who had moved from Nashville to L.A. He said, the two of you will become great friends and you should combine your talents. And so Gail and I did become friends. And you mentioned If I Can't Have You. She was a co-writer on that. And she's the one who actually took me to Joe Johnson at Four Star and at Challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was basically, uh, like so many young artists and songwriters, it was just an obsession with us. That's what, that was our hobby. That's where we we wanted to end up what we wanted to end up doing. So anytime we weren't working or anything, we were trying to write songs. That's just what we love to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as a special time of day or uh, discipline, there wasn't. It was just whenever we we weren't working or <laughs> we had time. That's what we that's what we did for our yeah. pastime. Yeah, yeah. Your most recent album is an American classic, which was released last year and features a song called If You Could Call It That, which was written by Steve Warner and Bobby Tomberlin as a kind of a posthumous co-write with Dottie West, who had left behind some lyrics in a notebook they were working with. And I believe that you and Dottie also collaborated on a song together called He's All I Need that she recorded on her 1983 album, New Horizons. Talk a bit about the role that Dottie played in your life and in your career. Dottie West was an incredible mentor to me and also one of my very best friends on and in and out of the business. Uh, we just shared a lot of common interest. And uh, I met her in, in L.A. Uh, I was aware of Dottie years ago. Uh, when I was still growing up in Pennsylvania, and she was on the Landmark Jamboree out of Cleveland, Ohio. So I admired everything about her back then. And so I followed anything Dottie West. So when I was, after I'd moved to L.A., and she was coming out to work the Palomino Club. So I, of course, was there. And after the show, I went up to meet her, and I told her that I became a fan from the landmark jamboree and she just started to laugh she said i don't even know the last time i met anybody who remembered the landmark jamboree <laughs> so that kind of melded our friendship right at the beginning wow. so she was very important she encouraged me very much to move to nashville mm. And I remember saying to her, Dottie, I don't know enough to move to Nashville yet. And she said, Nashville is where you learn. Wow, and she was so right. It was very important to make the move. And later when I met Hank, he said the same thing. He said, uh, I want to work with you, but I can't work with you 3,000 miles away. He said, first <laughs> of all, nobody takes you seriously of wanting to do this professionally until you make the move to Nashville. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, let's talk about Porter Wagoner, who I understand hired you to replace Norma Jean as what they used to call the, you know, quote unquote, girl singer on his show uh, prior right. to Dolly Parton having the job. Uh, you know, you talk about what you learned in Nashville and, and that that was kind of like a, a learning ground. What did you learn about show business from working with Porter? Oh, my goodness. I learned so much from Porter. That was interesting because when I first came back here, in fact, I had the job, which made it easier for me to make the move to Nashville, knowing I had a job at the four-star music office here in Nashville. The girl had left, and they were looking for someone. They offered the job to me. So that's where I worked. And I was, my, the office there was uh, about three doors down from Porter's office. Hmm. His secretary was also a friend that I had met through songwriter Jerry Fuller in California. And um, so Judy Myers is her name. And she kept telling Porter, you got to hear my new friend that just moved here sing. So one day he, t he said, well, tell her to come down and sing me some songs. So on my lunch hour, I went down and sang for Porter. He hired me a month after I got to Nashville. Norma wanted some time off the road. And uh, so Porter hired me to do that. And I learned so much. I remember the first, the very first trip out, we went up north and to Canada hmm. for like, I think it was nine or 10 days. I had no idea how to pack. Thank goodness I had grown up in the north, so I knew, I understood how cold it was going to be. But <laughs> I think I packed everything I owned, which probably all fit in two big suitcases. So <laughs> I've learned how to pack the very first trip out with Porter. <laughs> and I also... um I learned a lot from Porter in uh, how you how you treat people, mm. um, and I'm trying to think how I can explain that. Um, he he taught me that you need to be very careful when you're talking. Always talk to the fans, but be very careful how you talk to them because mm. you can't use terminology we use in the music industry with the fans because they don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. And also they can, they can make things, take things wrong, you know, yeah. and I'd never thought about that. But Porter, Porter taught me that um, and how important it is to, to build that fan base. I was very fortunate to, to learn that. I yeah. also learned um, even more so uh how important it is that that entertainment family rapport, you know, how, uh, what it takes to get along. When you think about six, uh, six or seven adults living on basically a 36-foot house trailer, <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, that's what you're doing in that, uh, in that bus for hours on end and, and on the stages and so you have very little time away from each other. So there's a knack to knowing how. And I was so uh, always appreciated that because then when Jack Green and I started traveling together, I was able to use that knowledge well to hmm. keep our organization running smoothly. Yeah, yeah.
you know, speaking of Porter, he had a top 10 hit in 1962 written by Bill Anderson called I've Enjoyed As Much of This As I Can Stand. Um, and Laurie Morgan recorded it in 1997 with some different lyrics. And you're credited as a co-writer on that later version. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, I was revamping my show, and I've always thought it was interesting to hear an artist take a standard, if you will, and put their own twist to it. That song had one of my all-time favorite lines in a song, the line that says, there's so much more between us than this table. Hmm. I've always loved that line, and I wanted to sing it. So I chose that song. So I first thing I'm doing, I'm changing the lyrics to a female. Hmm. Then I'm softening the way some of it is said because I was thinking uh, I wouldn't say it that way. I don't think a girl would say it that way. Hmm. And uh, so... Uh, Instead of you look lovelier tonight than I, you look better tonight than I remembered. Just that kind of thing. And then I wanted to slow it down. I wanted to make it a powerful ballad so that people could really hear and feel what those lyrics meant. And I wanted the bridge to build. And the more I worked on it, um, I thought, you have made so many changes in Bill's song. You need to run this by Bill. <laughs> so one night at the Opry, I asked him to come down to my dressing room where I had that old upright piano and uh, to listen to it. And I was afraid to even look at him. So <laughs> I had my eyes closed. I'm playing the piano and singing it. And when I quit... I looked up at him, and he was just looking at me with this serious look. And I said, okay, okay, I won't ever sing it that way again. <laughs> he said, no. He said, you have you have created a, a whole new song out of that. He said, I have looked at that copyright a dozen times trying to see if there's any way to update it. And he said, I came up with nothing. He said, I'm going to the office Monday morning, and if we get this cut, this arrangement, you get half of it. Wow. By the way, I just pitched the song again to another girl that's, that's recording. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. This episode of Songcraft is sponsored by the new Taylor GT. Smaller size, bigger sound, serious fun. More and more guitar players want the comfort of a smaller acoustic guitar without having to skimp on sound. And that's especially true of songwriters who are often thinking about both portability and great quality. That led our friends over at Taylor Guitars to design a whole new class of guitar that could deliver on both fronts. Their latest release, the fun-to-play new GT, combines the fast, slinky feel of a compact acoustic with a rich, full-bodied voice that sonically punches above its weight class. Discover why Guitar Player Magazine called the GT one of the easiest playing guitars they've ever had their hands on and gave it their Editor's Pick Award. You can learn more about Taylor's new GT models at taylorguitars.com or take one for a spin at a Taylor dealer near you. Well, your big breakthrough as an artist came in 1966 with Don't Touch Me, which reached number one on the country chart. Don't open the door to heaven if I can't. Don't touch me if you don't 
That song was, of course, written by Hank Cochran, who's known for writing I Fall to Pieces, Make the World Go Away, She's Got You, a ton more, including your other mm-hmm. biggest hits, I Love You More Than You Need, I Wish I Didn't Have to Miss You, and Can I Sleep in Your Arms Tonight, Mister. Um, and the two of you were also married for over a decade, I believe, which meant that mm-hmm. you know not only were you a songwriter, but you were sharing your life with one of the best-known country songwriters of all time. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts about the Nashville songwriting community in that era in terms of, you know, you're right there in the middle of it. What what was the Nashville songwriting community like in those days? Um, and how was it, you know, different then than it is now? Well, the songwriting community then was a very close-knit group. And, and it was just uh, the only word I can think of to describe it. It was alive. The town was alive with these people, and uh, the creativity was amazing everywhere you went. And I was very, I've always felt very fortunate that I came back in that time and got to be around Hank Cochran, Harlan Howard, Willie Nelson, Roger Miller. You know, it, just is amazing to me to look back and what I learned from all of them. Dottie was also, you know, very active as a songwriter. And while it was a close knit group, it, it was the old buddy system though. I have Hmm. to say that Dottie and I struggled and the thing, and I'm not saying I'm not bashing the guys. It was just a natural thing. They weren't, used to it being any different a lot of it they didn't even think about yeah. but they would all gather at a bar or shooting pool or whatever and they could then write together network where Dottie and I weren't in those situations but right. they didn't think to call us and include us also the other disadvantage uh, was like when say an artist like Merle Haggard or somebody came to Nashville to record, the guys could all gather there again at the bar or in their motel room mm-hmm. um, in, or on the bus and were, had that opportunity to co-write and to pitch their songs. Yeah. There again, we didn't have that advantage. Hmm. Dottie uh, was able to open the doors because she loved to cook and was a great cook. So um, that's how we kind of got through the door on a lot of occasions. It was like <laughs> Dottie's, Dottie's cooking a big, you know, y'all come on out. So everybody wanted to eat. So that was one avenue <laughs> that helped us. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned Norma Jean a, a moment ago, who you replaced on Porter Wagoner's show, and, and you and Hank Cochran are credited as co-writers on a couple of her singles from the late 1960s, uh, Then Go Home to Her and You Changed Everything About Me But My Name, which reached the top 40. Um, I'm curious if you and Hank collaborated very much, or did you generally kind of keep your songwriting pursuits fairly separate? Well, the we didn't co-write very much. Um, I think one of the things early on when I asked Hank, I said, why won't you write anything with me? He said, because until you have some success on your own, they're never going to believe you wrote any of it. 
they're mm. always going to think that that I I did most of it. So he really pushed me to write on my own, and I'm I've always been glad of that. Of course, at the time it was devastating to me, mm. and um, the few things that we did write together they were ideas. The two you mentioned they were ideas I had. And we were really kind of pushing the clock to get it on the session. Hmm. So I think he ended up maybe helping finish them to get it done in time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we touched on your American Classic album from last year, which includes new interpretations of Hank's songs, Don't Touch Me and Can I Sleep in Your Arms Tonight, Mister. Um, and that latter song was also recorded by Willie Nelson on his Redheaded Stranger album. And I know that, that Hank was a big part of Willie's uh, career early on, and you mentioned you know, having the opportunity to, to be around Willie in those days. But Hank wasn't the only one with a Willie Nelson cut. In 1970, Willie recorded a song called Senses that you co-wrote with Glenn Campbell and that we had mentioned earlier had been recorded by Connie Smith. My senses tell me all that I need to know It's over but I don't have the sense to let you go It doesn't make much sense for me to cry for you And if I had any sense at all I'd And that that you know, makes my uh, makes my ears perk up. Like, oh wow, you wrote this song with <laughs> Glenn Campbell that that Willie Nelson recorded. What what can you tell yeah. us about that one? Well, okay, this goes back to the very same situation uh, that we discussed earlier uh, with Randy Newman. I was working uh, there at um, Liberty Imperial and Metric Music. I hired all these guys for the demo sessions and. Glenn was not only playing guitar on a lot of them, but he was singing a lot of the demos. And again, I couldn't, I didn't know where that chord was going that I wanted. So anyway, I, and I also knew, I learned some politics real quick. I knew that if I could get Glenn to cut the demo, that people would pay attention because they knew Glenn Campbell's name. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, Glenn and I had gotten to be pretty good friends because of working together there. And another thing, there were a couple of girlfriends and I uh, leased a house up on uh, Sycamore Trail up off of Woodrow Wilson Drive. You live out there now, so you know where that is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it got to be a hangout for a lot of the musicians, songwriters, disc jockeys, and all because I had a really good uh, sound system and they'd come up there and play <laughs> stuff, you know. Right, so that right. was an that was an end too. But anyway, uh, Glenn did show play that chord and, and cut the demo. And I don't know whatever happened that demo, I would give anything to have it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. And uh, I also had done it, so I'm not sure which one was sent to Connie Smith. Hmm. 
But I remember being so thrilled when they sent that back to yeah. Connie. Yeah. Well, and it's cool, too, that, you know, we were talking about, you know, people like Connie Smith and, and Willie Nelson cutting your songs decades ago. And these are people who are still recording with you. You know, even yeah. as recently as your last single, Not a Dry in the House, mm-hmm. was a duet with, with you and Willie. It's it's cool to see how those where where you kind of started out as a writer are still the people who are in your life and that you have the opportunity to still be working with them. Well, once I become friends with you, I don't let you go. That's just <laughs> kind of how I am. There's not a dry eye in the house. We used to call a home. And there's nothing there But memories, wood and stone And when I think of you That's when I lose control There's not a dry eye in the You know, your biggest hit as an artist may have been Don't Touch Me, but your biggest hit as a writer came in 1971 when Farron Young scored a top 10 hit with Leaving and Saying Goodbye, which is one of his classic records. Um, That's a song you wrote by yourself, and there weren't a lot of solo female writers landing big country hits in that era. Um, Talk about how that song came together and how Farron ended up recording it. Well, I wrote the song, that's one of the... Uh, songs in my catalog that really was written from my own experience. Um, I was laughing earlier. You know, I'm an eavesdropper, so be careful if you ever sit at the table (laughs) next to me in a restaurant, because if I overhear a conversation, I'm liable to write a song about it. But that song was absolutely true. I was, Hank and I were having serious difficulties at the time and I tried to leave him and uh, I I just it just didn't work you know and it was uh, it just hit me one time it's like well saying you're leaving's a lot easier than leaving and saying goodbye because mm-hmm. once you left you know and you look back and say well maybe it maybe it's not that bad that it can't be fixed nobody wants a divorce really Nobody yeah. does. And you there's a fail, sense of failure no matter how you look at it. Even when you want a divorce, it's difficult and it's a sense of failure. So that was where that song came from, how I wrote it. And it was because of a snowstorm that it was pitched to Fair and Young. We were all on one of the big country music package shows at McCormick Hall in Chicago. A major snowstorm hit up there. Back in those days, you did a two o'clock matinee and an eight o'clock night show. Well, in between, there was no place to go. And back in those days, they didn't 
They didn't have full meals catered. There were no sandwiches. There were no snacks. There was nothing. Unless you had something on the bus, you were in trouble. So it was more often a scotch bottle. And that was the case <laughs> that day. Right. We all gathered out. Farron was on that show. And so anyway, pulled out the guitars to pass the time, you know, between the shows. Because you couldn't move the buses. You never got them back in. It never occurred to anybody back then to cancel a show. You know? <laughs> right. So, you know, do the show and then worry about how you're going to get home. But we were all sitting around singing and I had just written that song. And so I sang it and Farron said, I want that song. He said, mm. soon as get that song to me, as soon as I get back, I'm going into the studio and record it. And wow. I... Wow. You know, I kind of halfway believed him, but halfway not. And uh, <laughs> then got a phone call after we got back to Nashville and said, where's that song? So wow. uh, got the song <laughs> sent to him. So that's how that all came about. So many times I've told you I was leaving. And so many times how I tried But saying you're leaving so much easier Than leaving and saying goodbye Cause every time I start to go you know, despite the fact that you were a writer on all three um, singles that you released for the Challenge label back in California, after you moved to Nashville, you had 17 charting singles written by Hank or other writers before you appeared on the chart as an artist with one of your own songs, which was Farm in Pennsylvania in 1973, <laughs> uh, another song that you wrote solo. And you followed that up with another solo written composition, He Can Be Mine, uh, which you made a top 20 hit the following year. But this was after Norma Jean had charted with two of your of your songs. Uh, it was after Ray Price recorded your song Enough to Lie on his Touch My Heart album. This is after Connie Smith and Willie Nelson had both recorded Senses. And this is after Farron Young had scored a, a bona fide hit with a song that you had written solo. Um so I, I'd love to hear a bit more. You, you kind of touched on it, but I'm guessing that you were not intentionally holding back as a, as a writer for your own artist career. And I'm curious if, if you had to basically, you know, just kind of fight the record company to let you record your own material. Yeah, I kind of think I did. Of course, I, not wanting to blame somebody else, I just don't think I was um, confident enough either in my own stuff to really push that hard it took these other cuts by other artists i think to even convince me to have the confidence um to try it and then too i think that they started looking and saying well you know a lot of times nobody can deliver a song better than the writer yeah especially mm -hmm. if they're an artist so I think they started being a little bit more open to me doing my own stuff too. Yeah. I yeah. loved He Can Be Mine. I, that's one of my favorite mm -hmm. things. 
You have been credited with helping to change the perception of women in country music, you know, by doing things like wearing mini skirts on the Opry stage and, and bringing a more modern sensibility to your image and performances at a time when, you know, the genre was a little more traditional and maybe somewhat slow to evolve. And you, you've talked a bit about some of the challenges that, that a female songwriter uh, faced in the community at the time. Did you... Did you think of your career in terms of what it might be doing for other women that would come later? Or was it kind of enough for you just to handle the challenges that were right in front of you? Well, I think I felt like I needed to face the challenges in front of me, first of all, and hope that it would make a difference. Um, the miniskirt, the... The whole thing about the miniskirt, what that did, the the main significance is that I just, it wouldn't have mattered what I wore that was different. Everybody was wearing the gingham checks, the ruffles, the petticoats, whatever. And I knew they did. But keep in mind, I had never been to the Grand Ole Opry until I was on it. Wow. Uh, I'd listened my whole life, and I'd seen the pictures. I guess in my mind, I was just thinking that's what they choose to wear, and it wasn't what I did. And of course, I moved from L.A., which everybody was wearing the short skirts to mini skirts at that time. And as far as um, that image, um, a lot in country music, they they had always the men wore the rhinestones, and some of the girls did a later on and that made you a country music entertainer i never looked at it that way i have never looked at myself as any different than any other american girl or woman other than i sing and write songs for a living so i've always wanted to wear whatever was in style at the time you know i was uh, the mini skirts were in style, and what? So the significance of that was that when I got away with wearing that, of all things, that opened the door for the other girls to wear whatever they wanted to, hmm. and some of them then went to pantsuits or to the chiffon dressier dresses to sequins or whatever. But that seemed to. I just opened the door. I opened the can of worms that nobody could ever put the worms back once they were out, you know. And it was kind of an accident that I did it. But that's the way I've always looked at it. I didn't create this uh, country Western image because I wasn't. I'm just like everybody else. And also brought the bear midriff. That was the first uh, to do that hmm. in the hip huggers and just whatever was in style is what <laughs> what I wanted to wear then and what I want to wear now. Right yeah. now, though, the style is open. Pretty much anything goes. Yeah, it's funny to think about even there being a conversation about like, oh, what is she wearing? You know, but but that was very much the case at that time. Yes, it was. Um, well, along those same lines, uh, Little Jimmy Dickens recorded your song, She Always Got What She Wanted, on an album that you produced. And not many women from your peer group um, have had the opportunity to sit in the producer's chair. And that's probably true in all genres of music, but especially in country. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about and what that experience was like. 
Well, first of all, I'm surprised that you realized that I produced that album because I had the production credits taken away from me when the album came out. Uh, I had written the song, and Jimmy Dickens loved it, and he said he wanted to record it. And then he came back to me later and said, Celie, I want you to produce this album with me. And so I was thrilled to death and immediately started paying paying more attention, thinking what, how I would go about this. And I guess it was about the second session in, we were working and I on a break, and I said, I just have to ask you why, why did you want me to do this is not the norm. At the time, I was 40 and he was 60. Hmm. And he said, didn't you want to? And I said, well, of course, but this is not a normal thing. And he said, well, I thought about that. But he said, I decided anybody who could write, she always got what she wanted. Lord, I wish that she'd wanted me had a different perspective and he said I wanted that different perspective on the whole album and I thought you could see a different side and he mentioned the song shopping for dresses he said I thought you would understand that song yeah which of course I did so that's how it came about and I did produce the album I knew that we had captured it all. Buddy Emmons was wonderful as a musician to help me. <laughs> this is funny. I can tell this now. Um, but uh, Jimmy had a problem about breaking meter. Hmm. And so I had, Buddy Emmons, of course, was on so many of my records and created a lot of my early sound. And we got to be really good friends. And so I said, Emmons, you got to help me out here because I can only say one more time for us in here when he breaks meter. And I'm not going to tell him he's breaking meter. (laughs) So, uh, Buddy said, I got you covered, Ace. So... At one point, I'd we'd gone through it, and he broke meter, and Emmons just raked his uh, picks back across his strings and said, "One more time for me out here, Ace." <laughs> <laughs> so I loved it; it was great. But anyway, I had not had any experience in mixing. Mixings petrified me. Hmm. Because I knew that you can lose the whole thing. You can have magic on that recording tape, but you can lose it all in that mix. Right. So I called Porter and I said, because he'd always said, if you ever need me, you know, I'm here. So I called him and I said, I I need some help on something. He just kind of chuckled and he said, well, if I can help, you know, I will. What's what's going on? So I told him the situation. I said, Porter, I don't want to lose it. Will you help me mix this? Because for me and for Dickens, I want this to be good. Yeah. He said, sure, I'll be there. So he came in, and that's how that happened. But mm-hmm. when the album came out and the producer credits said Porter Wagner, I was devastated. Yeah. And I called immediately and asked, how did this happen? Who did this? 
and they said that it was Dickens' manager. And huh. so I called Richard da Davis's manager. I said, why, Richard, did you do that? And he said, because I felt like the album would get more stronger attention, more attention, mm. and Jeez. pushed more if it was connected with Porter. Wow. Tough lesson. Not the first lesson or the last one I was to learn. We're still wow. learning, guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think my favorite songwriter in any genre is probably Merle Haggard. Um, and it's, you know, one thing to have a hit, but I would imagine it's equally satisfying when a truly great writer records one of your songs, which is what happened to you not once, but twice when Merle recorded your song, My Love For You, on his Ramblin' Fever album from 1977, and then Life of a Rodeo Cowboy on his Always on a Mountain When I Fall album the following year. Um, you know, Merle uh, certainly is capable of writing a an amazing song. So when Merle picks somebody else's song to record, you know it's going to be good, and, and what a what an honor. Um, tell us a little about, about that experience and how that came about. Well, first of all, in 77, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a really bad car accident. So I was home recuperating from that. And uh, my secretary at the time, a um, friend who was helping, uh, came in and said, Merle Haggard's on the phone. And he wants to come out and see you. And I said, tell him I really appreciate it, but I don't really want to see him right now. And uh, so thanks anyway, you know. So anyway, she left. She came back in and she said, I told him what you said. And he said, I don't care whether she wants me to see her or not he said or wants to see me or not I want to see her so just tell her I'm coming so he came out to the farmhouse and at that time you know the whole left side of my face had had to be rebuilt broken jaw and uh, my jaws were wired together hmm. and uh, Haggard asked me if I had written anything lately and I had and I'd, I'd written uh my love for you and Rodeo Cowboy. And so he wanted them. So uh, we joked later. I said, did you just record them because you felt so sorry for me? <laughs> or did you like them? And he said, no. Uh, he said, I, I like both the songs. He said, uh, "The my love for you, he said, that's just such a great love song. Very yeah. strong love song. And, uh, and he said, I haven't written any of those lately. <laughs> My love is like a flame forever burning. And like a flame, my love for you is warm. My love is like a wheel that keeps on turning My love for you is strong enough to weather any storm uh, Rodeo Cowboy, it just, you know, he just liked 
everything about it. And of course, that that reached another group. You know, you study Haggard's career, his writing and his recording. He slowly reached every group of people from yeah. prison to working man to farmers to everything. Yeah. So that just, I always thought maybe reached. And I, I wrote the, about my nephew, Shane Seeley, who was a rodeo rider, and he kind of. <laughs> said the whole first thing to me when he'd come back for a visit. Wow. So anyway, yeah, that's how that came about. And during that time, too, um, I always joked, I said, if I was smart, I would have caused a little problem between Merle and whatever wife or lady was in his life because when those things were wrong there, I got to sing harmony on his <laughs> record. So... <laughs> I was going to ask you, I heard you saying you're singing harmony on Ramblin' Fever. Is that right? I'm on Ramblin' Fever, always on a mountain when I fall, and I guess my love for you. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm on Rodeo Cowboy or not. Yeah. Now that yeah. you mention it. Well, I can't remember. It's been a been a while ago. Right, it's been but a minute. Yeah, what, what a wonderful... Wonderful human being Merle Haggard was in yeah. all aspects. Yeah. Well, taking a look once again at the American Classic album, I, I believe the one original song on that album is All Through Crying Over You, which you performed as a duet with Rhonda Vincent. And that's not the first of your songs to feature Rhonda's voice, as she had a bluegrass hit in 2019 with Like I Could, which you wrote with Bobby Tomberlin and Aaron Enderlin. Well, what, what can you tell us about those songs? Well, um, All Through Crying was a song I wrote years ago. I was still living out on the farm, and I was driving in for an, an afternoon matinee at the Opry. And I don't know where that song came from, but I've joked so many times. Here I am driving down I-65, and all of a sudden this whole song was there. Every line it was just coming so fast in my mind and the melody. And I'm trying to like, okay, remember these chord changes in your mind. You get to the Opry House and yeah, that's it. I can remember this. And so when I thought I had it in my mind, I looked up and I was almost in Nashville. I had missed Briley Parkway, had to turn <laughs> around and go back. I rushed into the dressing room and grabbed the paper towel and a pen and, and scratched out keywords and key changes because then I had to go on stage. I just made it in time for my um, matinee show and came off stage and finish writing it out so I'm all through crying over you my eyes are dry looking for someone new don't think that I don't love you cause I do Um, what was the other one? Oh, and like I could. Okay, as songwriter featuring songwriters, this is interesting. I had never in all these years made a writer appointment. 
you know, <laughs> like they've been doing for years here. I'm right. like, how in the world can you know that your mind will think creative two months from now at two o'clock in the afternoon? <laughs> and I was so afraid that I would be embarrassed if I got there and I just couldn't think of anything. But uh, Bobby Tomerlin's been a really close friend for a long time and Aaron Enderlin, and they both said, write with us, do it with us, and because you can't be intimidated with us. Bobby said, we don't worry if we get together and nothing happens. We, we just you know, BS or go grab lunch. We don't worry about it. <laughs> right. So um, when I got the idea for Like I Could, um, I called them both and, and to see if they liked it, and they did. And I said, okay, let's set this writer appointment because this way at least if I can't think of anything when I get there, I'll know I at least brought the idea. So that's what we did. And the writer appointment was about six weeks out, I think. But uh, well, well. so that is my one and only writer appointment so far, guys. But that's amazing. I think we did okay. I think you did all right. <laughs> I thought you could see us together. like that you say we're through now what am i supposed to do just forget the love we do like i could yeah yeah you're on a hot streak you need to book some more of those appointments <laughs> yeah boy i need to i've got a couple more ideas finding the time right now is it's, it's hard with with everybody being quarantined, trying to stay safe, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, and I struggle enough trying to co-write. I don't want to try it on a Zoom, but I might have to here. All right. <laughs> um, well, as we've mentioned, your most recent album is American Classic, and we also we want to encourage our listeners to go check that out and, and also to check out the previous record written in song, uh, which, of course, is your versions of so many songs that have been recorded by other artists, many of which we talked about today and is just a great uh, album kind of getting to hear you interpret your own music. Um, Jeannie, it's, it's been a, a real honor for us to uh, speak with you today, and we thank you for spending some time with us. I appreciate you guys even considering me for your show. This is truly an honor when I know there's so many incredible songwriters you could be spending time with. I appreciate you choosing me. Well, you, you deserve it, and it's uh, it's been great speaking with you, and uh, and we hope we get to do it again sometime. All right. Thank you, guys. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com 
and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.